It's Friday 8th of December and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. Coming up, why the Bank of England won't be in the front line of central banks cutting rates next year and why this frankly weird US housing market could start looking a bit more normal in 2024. But first, Neil Shearing, Group Chief Economist, is in the hot seat to take us through the big macro market issues. How's it going, Neil? Hi, David. How are you doing? Good. We're hearing from our colleagues, Ruth Gregory and Tom Ryan, on the 2024 outlook in a bit. But I wanted to stay focused on that outlook because we've been inundated with client questions this past week about the global economy and markets next year. And I think the nature of those questions really gives a good flavor of what investors should be focusing on. So let's start with possibly the most frequently asked question, and it's this one about growth. Two years ago, you'd have said 500 basis points of rate hikes would be followed by recession as night follows day, but economies have for the most part shown that they're a bit more resilient to tightening, haven't they? We've just had another US payrolls report. On the face of it, it looked fairly robust feels like a good springboard to ask you this number one question. Will economies stay resilient? Well, I think a bit of context is important. And a key thing to point out is that some economies have been more resilient than others. So the US economy has grown by about 3% over the past year. And you just mentioned that uh, solid payrolls report we've just had. But Europe's economy has essentially stagnated. And Germany's economy, of course, over the past couple of quarters has contracted. So I would actually argue that the defining feature of the global economy over the past year has been one of US outperformance rather than broad-based resilience. Nonetheless, it, you know, it's fair to say that all advanced economies have fared a bit better than we had anticipated at the start of this year. Now, why is that? I think a lot of it actually has to do with the, the kind of weirdness of this cycle, as we've discussed on this podcast before. On the demand side, it's about lengthening maturity structures of debt that have dampened the pass-through of tighter monetary policy to households. So we've seen the flow of credit collapse, but we've not yet seen a big rise in debt servicing costs or debt servicing burdens. Households at the same time have been able to draw down their savings accumulated during the pandemic to cushion spending in the face of a large hit to real incomes as inflation surged. And then on the supply side of economies, we've had this continued unwinding of the, the supply side distortions caused by the pandemic, both in global supply chains and on the goods side, but also on the labour market side too. So if you put all that together, I think that helps to explain why economies have fared a bit better over the past 12 months than we had feared. Now, I guess the key question is, will that last? Accumulated savings, particularly in the US, been generally run down. Most of the supply side distortions have pretty much unwound now as well. And while monetary policy has lost some of its oomph, it's not entirely impotent. So I think there's a case for thinking that economies are going to weaken over the first half of 2024. We're still penciling in mild recessions in the case of most European economies. So some of this resilience will start to falter. But this picture of USI performance, I think, is which has been, like I say, the defining feature of the past 12 months, that continues, I suspect. But generally, I, I think our, our forecasts are below the consensus for 2024, aren't they? Yes. Generally, our GDP forecasts below the consensus in all major economies, actually, not just in developed markets, but also in emerging markets. A lot of optimism about policy easing at the moment. Lots of questions that we had in those client briefings about which developed market central banks are going to cut first and, and how much loosening we can expect over 2024. 
it does look like bond markets have, have shifted quite extraordinarily in, in recent weeks in favour of, of near-term cuts from the Fed and ECB and others. Are bond markets going to be disappointed or, or you know, do you think central banks will deliver in 2024 and by how much? The short answer, I think, is yes, central banks will start to loosen policy uh, next year. And I think two things are important when we start to think about this. The first is the outlook for growth and inflation. And the second is the central bank's response to shifts in that outlook, the, the so-called reaction function in the jargon. Now, the fact that inflation cycles across advanced economies have been highly synchronized suggests that the pandemic is the, the common shock that's been driving inflation in, in most advanced economies. As those effects unwind, we continue to think that inflation will fall further than people expect in most economies over the first half of next year. And the core inflation is going to be returning to around the mid 2% level in most advanced economies within the next six months or so. Now that leaves the reaction function of policymakers as the crucial determinant of which central bank moves first. And I think up until recently, it was pretty clear that the ECB was a bit more inherently hawkish than the Fed. We had those comments at the back end of last week from Governor Waller that appeared to open the door to, to, to rate cuts next year. We hadn't had similar comments from the ECB, but then over the past week, we've had comments from Isabel Schnabel that I have potentially followed in the Fed's footsteps. So put all that together, I think the Fed probably moves before the ECB because it's, it has a bit less of this in instinctive hawkishness of the ECB, but it's going to be a pretty close call. I wouldn't put much on the, on which moves first. I think the broad point is that by the time we get to the kind of Q2 next year, both the ECB, the Fed, probably the Bank of Canada as well, will be will be cutting. But we also had lots of questions about about risks to our view next year. And one of those was about the risk that the inflation actually you know, it it overshoots and that central banks aren't really in a position to to ease. Talk about that, would you? But talk more broadly about what you think could go wrong with our 2024 forecast. You know, what what's the known unknowns here? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the points worth stressing is that over the past five years or so, there's always been something that's come out of left field to disrupt macro forecasts. So I don't think that 2024 will necessarily be an exception to that. The problem, of course, is that when you ask economists to talk about risks, what they do is they give you a long list of things that could go wrong, uh, essentially get out of jail free cards, which is not much use if you're an investor and you're trying to think about how to position around those. I think one framework for thinking about this is to divide the macro risks from the non-macro risks. Clearly, there's a long list of non-macro events that could develop that would disrupt the, the macro outlook. So wars, pandemics, dare we say, it's, there's a busy, really busy election calendar next year too. So th there's lots on the non-macro front that, that could go wrong. But on the macro front, I think that's perhaps where we're on a bit safer ground. We could start to think about which risks are, are most relevant, both on the upside and on the downside. And mostly, again, they stem from the unusual nature of this cycle. And in particular, the associated uncertainty around the effect of policy tightening that we've had over the past 18 months. So it's possible that we never really get much of a pass through of tighter policy to the real economy and to debt servicing burdens of households and businesses. Inflation falls back. That gives a bit of a boost to real incomes. Labour markets stay pretty resilient. And actually, consumer spending remains stronger than we expect. I think that's probably the, the principal upside risk. Conversely, on the downside, it's possible that actually lurking around the corner following this large increase in interest rates is some financial market event, something in the financial system breaks. We've written extensively, for example, about risks in the non-bank 
financial sector uh, and the shadow banking sector, that could be a potential source of vulnerability. Or maybe inflation doesn't fall as far as we are anticipating and central banks are either forced to delay rate cuts or even, dare we say it, start to hike again. That in turn, if we were to get a resumption of the rate hiking cycle, that could, for example, rekindle concerns about fiscal sustainability in advanced economies too. So there's feedback loops at play here. So there are several upside and downside risks, but most of them stem from, I think, on the macro fronts at least, the uncertainty over over the effect of policy tightening that we've had over the past 18 months or so. I think one point that comes through in our analysis is that it's probably easier to identify downside risks than upside risks. Not to say that the, the economic impact of those downside risks is greater than the upside risk, but that they're probably greater in number. Yeah, the main upside risk to growth would be that we have this AI-related boom in productivity that we've talked about and we've written about in our annual spotlight report. But as we argued back then, I think it's most likely that that comes through at the back end of this decade rather than in the next year or so. So lots could go wrong. Clearly, the lesson of the past five years is that something will go wrong. It's easier to see more downside risks than upside risks at the moment. But on the macro front, at least, I think the source of those risks are likely to be around the uncertainty of the impact of the policy tightening that we've seen over the past year or so. That was Neil Shearing on the 2024 Outlook. I'll link to our World in 2024 page in the podcast notes where you can read more about the major themes and the key risks to our view in the coming year. But you'll also see there the kinds of questions that clients are asking about in terms of what to expect and what we're telling them. In the coming week, we're going to be all over the final policy meetings of 2023 from the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England. We're going to be holding one of our drop-ins, that's our short-form online briefings, just after the MPC on Thursday to wade through all of those decisions. Staying on the MPC, Ruth Gregory, our Deputy Chief UK Economist, this past week published analysis which explains why we think the consensus for a Bank of England rate cut around May-June next year's role. I spoke to her earlier about her analysis and I started by asking why we think the bank is going to wait until after the Fed and ECB to move. I think ultimately, whatever the Bank of England says next Thursday, it's crucial to remember that it's the, it's the economy that will determine how long rates stay at their peak and when they're cut. So our view is that rates will remain at their peak until late in 2024. And that's for a few reasons. The first is that I think the effect of higher interest rates are filtering through to the economy more slowly than in the past. And they're also being cushioned by some of the lingering effects of the pandemic. So I think interest rates just need to be higher for longer than uh, to have the same dampening effects on um, inflation and activity. And actually, if you look at what most models suggest, rates have risen to a, a lower peak than they suggest, and that implies that they need to stay higher for longer to compensate. And I think the bank also knows um, that high inflation has dented its credibility. Um, so I think it will be want to be absolutely sure that inflationary pressures are consistent with the 2% target before it cuts rates. So I do think it's likely to err on the side of policy being too tight rather than too loose. And in fact, in our forecast, we don't expect wage growth to fall from 11.9% in September to the rates uh, consistent with the 2% target of 3 to 3.5% until early in 2025. And the other key barometer that the Bank of England is looking at, which is services, CPI inflation, that's a key barometer of domestic inflationary pressures. We don't think that will e ease to its long run average um, of 3.5% until late in 2024. 
And there is a final reason why we think that rate cuts may not come until late in 2024 rather than in uh, the middle of 2024, as investors expect. <clears throat> and that's because we expect the government to unveil a further scale back in the tightening in fiscal policy ahead of the next election. And in an environment where deficient supply rather than demand is the key factor that's holding back uh, economic activity, I think a, a smaller drag from fiscal policy that may add to price pressures and may mean that interest rates need to stay higher for a bit longer uh, to compensate. Um, so these are the reasons why we think the bank won't cut rates um, until late in 2024, and that would be later than the Fed, uh, later than the ECB and the current market pricing, um, which is for mid-2024. Yeah, one thing I like about your report is, you know, obviously it makes this case for, for rate cuts coming later than, than most people expect, but it also provides a framework, doesn't it, for working through when or how the Bank of England thinks about inflationary conditions and, and the economic environment and when's the right time to cut. So so on that, I, what do you think will prompt the bank to cut rates? Or to use your analogy borrowed from, from Hugh Pill, when do we know it's time to come down from, from Table Mountain? Yeah, in our, in our report, um, we look at some of the key indicators that have usually convinced the Bank of England to cut rates in the past. Um, and I think there were some surprising results. Um, the first is that the current rate of inflation doesn't have to be below the Bank of England's 2% target for the bank to cut rates. The unemployment rate doesn't have to be rising. Um, the Bank of England also doesn't have to be forecasting that inflation will be below 2% in two years' time. And nor does the economy have to be in recession. So when the Bank of England started cutting rates in the past, economic growth was often still quite healthy. And in our report, we find that instead, the Bank of England typically relies on a wide range of indicators when deciding when to cut rates. And some of the most important are, in fact, an easing in wage growth and timelier indicators such as the composite activity PMI and a fall in the number of job number of job vacancies. So I think these are the key indicators that that will tell us that the bank has looked at in the past when it's considered cutting rates. I think that that you know we, we've already said that our our view is that rate cuts will begin late in 2024, but wage growth the vacancy to unemployment ratio and CPI and services inflation, I think will be the key indicators to watch to judge whether rate cuts happen sooner or later than than we expect. You you keep mentioning wage growth. Now, there's a big row going on in the UK at the moment, for the most part centred on the, on, on the Conservative Party, it seems, about immigration. We had that data showing a net 745,000 increase in the year to June. I, I don't want to get into the politics of this, but I do want to ask you as an economist, what do migration levels like this mean in terms of easing labour market pressures? And, and would restrictions on this inflow of people that are currently being discussed, would, would they present an upside risk to our wage forecasts? Yeah, I think when it, when it comes to the economy, it's perhaps um, a little disappointing that despite that strong net migration figure that you mentioned, the total number of people that are willing and able to work is, is no bigger than it was before the pandemic. Perhaps without uh, strong net migration, then the available pool of workers may have been even lower. So there's been lots of talk, hasn't there, about clamping down on the numbers of net migration. It's not clear over what time period that will be and the exact specification of the policy. But I think the bottom line is that, you know, we have we have seen big restraints on the supply of labour in the in the UK and 
uh, I think these restraints on the supply of labour explain why we think that wage growth will ease only slowly and the Bank of England probably won't be able to cut interest rates until after the Fed and the ECB, perhaps later next year. That was Ruth Gregory on when the Bank of England could cut rates. Finally this week, the US housing market. 2023 has been a strange one with no one wanting to move and face mortgage rates at generational highs, supply dwindling as a result and prices surging. That's been starting to unwind in recent weeks and Tom Ryan, who leads our housing market coverage, sees that continuing into 2024, but only so far. In this conversation, you'll hear Tom describe the outlook for the coming year, and it starts with him explaining why the market has been weird for so much of this year. I mean, on the face of it, definitely seems like a confusing market to navigate because you've got mortgage rates close to 8% in October, which is the highest they've been in almost 23 years, but you've actually got house prices rising in response to that, which isn't necessarily the, the usual relationship that would normally take place. In terms of like what's, what's happening, I think if you boil it down to the supply and demand dynamics, it all becomes a lot simpler to understand. So like I said, you've got mortgage rates 8% in October, and that has choked by demand. You've got sales of existing homes at 13-year lows, mortgage applications, coming off an extremely weak month also in October. And all else equal, you would expect house prices to fall. But the flip side of that is the supply of housing is extraordinarily tight. You've got 30-year fixes in the US. So households uh, have no real incentive to um, leave their, their fixed mortgage rates, which they've managed to finance at 4%, some even 3%. And so the inventory of secondhand homes is really small um, in the US and existing homeowners are sitting on their houses unwilling to move. So in terms of what this actually has meant for prices, the extremely low demand, at least for now, is being outweighed by tight supply and you've had sort of house prices actually be quite strong in recent months. So it's it sounds like a fairly extreme version of what we've what we've been seeing in the UK and in Europe, where to a large extent households have been shielded from this aggressive ramp up in interest rates because of the fixed term um, of, of their debt. I guess the flip side of that as we move into 2024 is that our US economics team has 175 basis points of rate cuts from the Fed next year. Talk about how that shift from, from tightening to easing is going to feed through for the market. Is it going to unwind some of these distortions that you've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you're already seeing sort of the extreme in mortgage rates unwind already. So very briefly and simplistically, mortgage rates track the 10-year treasury yield and a spread. And the 10-year treasury yield essentially, amongst other things, follows the outlook for, for, for the Fed. Now, 10-year yields have, have done, come down quite a bit already and mortgage rates have already followed. So whereas October was the peak in mortgage rates at 8%, today, as of filming this podcast, which is the, the 6th of December, mortgage rates are already at 7.2%. And we expect that dynamic to continue. As the Fed actually cuts next year, the 10-year Treasury yield should, should drop back and mortgage rates will follow. And we pencil in mortgage rates of 6% by the end of 2025 which is obviously quite a bit lower. But I think to contextualize it, you've got to keep in mind that that's still considerably higher than the 4% mortgage rates you had in the 2010s decade. So still still relatively high rates, but but obviously lower than, than what we've seen. I mean, 
What does this mean in terms of activity? Are we seeing a pickup in activity as mortgage rates come down? Yes. Yeah, so the most timely data we have for this is mortgage applications, which is sort of weekly. And that has they have been bouncing off their October lows in response to the already small movement we've had in mortgage rates. And we expect that to sort of steadily continue in for the next couple of years, along along as house sales and other activity measures. But like I said, because we don't expect, you know, the low mortgage rates that we've been used to over the previous decade or so, we don't expect activity to sort of get back to where it was in the 2010s. We expect sort of a slow, steady recovery, but the activity remains at quite a low level relative to what we've been used to. What about this question of supply? Is that then going to come through? Talk a bit about the outlook for for construction in 2024 as well. So in terms of activity, like I said, will sort of rebound somewhat. But on the flip side of that, you'll also see some more supply come onto the market because the effects of interest rate lock-in will somewhat unwind as uh, mortgage rates fall. So what you'll have is, again, you've got to look back at the supply-demand balance. You'll have a a slight bounce in demand, but also a slight recovery in inventory to meet that. So in terms of what it actually means for prices over the next couple of years, uh, we expect it to remain quite finely balanced. In terms of what this means for prices, we expect far more subdued house price growth over the next couple of years. So we penciled in 1.5% next year in 2024 and 1.7% the year after. Just contextualizing that somewhat, we are today around 4.8% for 2023, will probably go somewhat higher. But in 2021, house prices accelerated 19%. So yeah, like I said, more subdued house price growth. But I think maybe the key is we're unlikely to see any further house price falls. In terms of what it means for construction activity, because uh, the market for existing homes is still set to remain very tight, we actually we see construction activity remaining strong like it currently is. We're actually more bold than the consensus is on our forecast for construction activity. We don't see it making another leg lower, which a lot of the forecasters do. We think new home sales have been so strong recently. The home builders are very well capitalized. They've, they're in a very strong financial position. and we think that construction activity, building permits, housing starts, and all those measures will continue to rise steadily for the next couple of years without making that next leg lower. Tom Ryan there on the outlook for the US housing market. I'll post his Q1 housing outlook on the podcast page, and he'll be back on the podcast in 2024 to update us on mortgage rates and activity. But that's it for this week. As ever, if you want full access to all the research, all the events, and all the data referenced in this episode, check out CE Advance, our premium offering. Details at capitaleconomics.com forward slash CE hyphen advance. That's forward slash CE hyphen advance. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.